0: Our passage this evening is from Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. If you would turn with me there now. Once again, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. It says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. "'But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. "'But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, "'turn to him the other also.' And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if you want, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to Him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day, for this evening where we can gather together and worship you and learn from your word, and we just pray now that you would speak through me, open our minds and our hearts to your word this evening, that we might learn from it now. In Christ, and we pray, amen. amen. So there are a shortage of perfect movies in the world, but one of them is the 1987 classic, The Princess Bride. Even those who haven't seen the movie probably know one of its more famous lines, and it goes... My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. When the character Inigo was young, his father had been killed by the six fingered man. And he spends the movie looking for that man. The desire for vengeance keeps him going. And when he finally finds the man, he delivers that classic line My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And we in the audience, we're pumped watching this scene. He's about to get vengeance. Justice is going to be served. And it's even proportional. It's a life for a life. And if we glance at the Old Testament law, it seems that Inigo is in the right. After all, doesn't it say that we should take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life? Well, as we'll see, on a Pharisaical reading of the text, Inigo is in the right. He has upheld the Mosaic Law as understood by the Pharisees. Christ, however, is going to offer a slightly different reading of the Law. So as much as we like Him, we're going to have to talk about why Inigo is wrong. And as with all of these illustrations throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Christ offers, the easiest way to go about it is by looking at what Moses taught and what the Pharisees taught and then at what Christ taught. Now, briefly, by way of context, as always, just a quick refresher, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been born, he's been tempted, he's called his disciples, and now he's laying out for them what it means to be one of his followers. The disciples had been raised in the Judaism of the day, a Judaism that had failed to understand what being a follower of God really meant. And so Jesus tells them, it looks like the Beatitudes, it looks like being salt and light. And then he spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount explaining what that looks like in practice. And he does this through a series of illustrations, correcting their misunderstandings and misapplications of the law. And first he uses the law around murder, and then around adultery, and then around oaths, and now around retribution and justice. And so he begins that, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And now one of the key questions in this passage, as throughout all these illustrations so far, is the question of what Christ is addressing. Each time he begins, you have heard that it was said, and then he basically quotes something from the Old Testament. And if we're not careful, we can assume that Jesus is correcting the Old Testament. And a lot of people throughout church history have seen it that way. The Old Testament, it was mean and harsh, and Jesus came along to make it nice and butterflies and to move past all the the barbaric stuff of Moses. And so the people who take this approach, they they fundamentally misunderstand what Jesus is doing. They read passages like this and think that Jesus is making some change to the law, either making it harder or doing, doing away with it entirely. When in reality, he's casting off the corrupt application of the Pharisees, the corrupt influence of the Pharisees, to show the disciples what the law really meant all along. The the Pharisees were corrupt examples of Old Testament Judaism, and so Christ comes to say, "You've, you've searched the scriptures, but your heart was hard, and you read it wrong. So I say to you... Now, with that as our foundation, where does this saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, come from? And what did Moses teach? Well, the saying, which we call the rule of lex talionis, the law of of retaliation, can be found in three different places in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 19, in Exodus 21, and in Leviticus 24, each time giving some variation of that phrase. Now, in the modern world, this eye-for-an-eye-type attitude is seen as one of the obvious examples of the harshness of the Old Testament. See, they'll say, the Old Testament, it's merciless. It's demanding an an eye-for-an-eye. And then there's that line that always follows it up. You know, an an eye-for-an-eye makes the whole world blind. And so it's seen as this harsh, merciless law. But if we actually look at the Old Testament, we'll realize that it's seen as harsh mainly because we tend to look at it through the eyes of the Pharisees rather than the eyes of Moses. So why is this law given, and how does it work? In Deuteronomy, the law is, the rule is given in the context of court proceedings. And it's used to say that if a false witness comes and lies in court, that they should get the punishment that they were trying to get on the other person. So if I take you to court and I lie and try and get you punished somehow... I'm to get the punishment I was trying to enact on you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In Exodus, the rule is given following the Ten Commandments. And in this section, Moses is giving a series of case law, civil code for the society, giving guidance to judges. And it's given to say that if a pregnant woman is hit and there is damage and harm is done, then there is to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then finally in Leviticus 24, Moses is again laying out case law and telling the people what the civil law is supposed to be and laying out this principle, an eye for an eye. And again, looking at it with modern eyes, many people are tempted to call Moses harsh, demanding an eye for an eye. But what's the point of the law? Well, there are two points to the law. Earlier, we mentioned Inigo Montoya hunting down and killing the six-fingered man who killed his father a life for a life. As we said, it's proportional. But as humans, we can be tempted to go overboard sometimes. Sometimes the vengeance isn't proportional. There's a newer movie where a guy has his dog killed by some gang members, and then he goes and like kills everybody in the gang. There's a little something lopsided with the equation there. And, of course, it's not just in movies. If you lived in the early 2000s, you might remember, like, Napster, where you could download music illegally. And there were people getting hit with, like, quarter-million-dollar fines for a couple dozen songs. The point wasn't proportionality. The point was to make an example. We're going to be extremely hard on this person, so nobody ever does that again. Well, if you we look at the Bible, we can see Simeon and Levi slaughtering Shechem after the violation of their sister in Genesis 34. As image bearers of God, we have this desire, this inborn desire for justice. But as fallen humans, that desire can get out of control. We don't just desire justice. We want to make an example. We want to get them back and to take it a step further. Anybody who's ever been involved in a prank war knows how you can do I'm going to do this to them, and then they'll do it back a little bit more. You can go back a little bit more, and it can just escalate until inevitably somebody does something that just takes it too far. And in the ancient and modern world, it's not just pranks. The Wild West is full of rivalries. I once went to a Whitewater guide school where everybody knew like two families owned all the land along the river and they still hated each other from some like 100-year-old blood feud (laughs) that got out of control. And so the law of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, far from being harsh and merciless, is designed to curb this sort of extreme retaliation. This principle is, in short, that the punishment must fit the crime. If somebody knocks out your tooth, the limit of the punishment they can receive is losing a tooth. You can't take two and you can't go off the rails and demand that they be killed for it to satisfy your honor or your bloodlust. So that's the first point of the law, not to be harsh, but to limit the harshness. To limit the punishment that can be inflicted. It was not a call to vengeance, it was a call to equity. And so the rule had this purpose of limiting harshness, and if that's the only point that it has, then, you know, Inigo would be in the right. He was proportional. He was not overly harsh, it was a life for a life. He does kind of, like, poke the guy a few extra times in there. But in general, it's a life for a life. But then we remember that these laws were given in the context of civil case laws, usually for judges. Which means that an eye for eye didn't mean you could go out and poke out the eye of the guy who poked out your eye. Personal vengeance was forbidden in the Old Testament. The Lord says in Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance. Because as in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul later echoes this in Romans 12. Vengeance, justice was to be left to God which in the bible doesn't just mean you have to like wait around for god to smite the person with a lightning bolt. I mean, god might take vengeance that way. It can happen. But leaving vengeance to god means first and foremost that we don't take actions into our own hands. It means that we leave our case in the hands of god, which when given in this context, in the context of law codes and advice to judges, means in the hands of the courts. This is why Paul immediately after quoting Leviticus 19 On not taking vengeance, he immediately moves to start talking about submitting to the governing authorities. Starts talking about how the civil judge is God's servant, an agent of retribution to the wrongdoer. I don't take action against my enemies because, as in Romans 13, there's a police force and a law court to deal with that, and they act as God's representatives to bring justice. That's in part what it means to leave vengeance to God, to leave it to the courts who are his representatives. So personal vengeance is forbidden, which, among other things, puts an end to the tit-for-tat, back-and-forth escalating retaliation, where this guy hit that, hit that guy, so this guy kills that guy, so their friends kill his family, and just back and forth in an endless blood feud. This puts justice in the hands of the courts, and then the courts are given a limit on the punishment that they can exact. They don't get to make examples out of people. They don't get to say, this guy knocked out this guy's tooth, and so to prevent anybody from doing that again, we're going to take all of his teeth. God, through Moses, provides a check against this sort of excess. Excess is not allowed, and favoritism is put in check as well. The law is the same for rich and for poor, for men and for women. In truth, it's a very progressive law. Now, in comparison, there is also the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, and it had a kind of similar rule. See if you can hear the difference. In Habarabi's, in the Code of Hammurabi, there is a rule that if you killed somebody's wife, the punishment is that your wife is killed. There's a slight difference there. There's something, some sort of disconnect between that and Moses' law. If I kill somebody's wife, it's not that I'm killed. It's that my wife is killed. There's a disconnect, a difference. There's a a mercifulness in Moses' law that is lacking in the laws of the other people of the time. God isn't having any of this nonsense of Hammurabi. And it's only because of two thousand years of Christian influence and a focus on mercy that we view this law as being harsh. In the ancient context, you probably had people back being like, you know, back in my day, we'd hog tie and drag a man to death if he knocked out your tooth. And this Moses fellow comes along and he's like, no, you can only, you have to be nice. You can only take a tooth back. Can you believe it? It's unheard of. The niceness of this Moses guy. So that's what Moses taught, but what about the Pharisees? In short, they seem to have put aside both of these points. The Pharisees seem to have taken the principle of Moses out of context to say exactly what the modern world thinks it says. That it just reverses the golden rule to say, you know, do unto others as they do unto you. The Pharisees were justifying personal vengeance by appealing to God's moral law. They took a law that it was designed to limit retaliation and used it to, as an excuse for vindictiveness. For the Pharisees, this was a principle to be personally insisted upon and personally carried out rather than something to be restrained and performed in the courts. It was furthermore, as we'll see as we move through Jesus' response, a very legalistic outlook really concerned with its own rights and in what it is owed. So that's the Pharisees' approach. Now, how does Jesus respond to all of this? Well, Jesus responds with four illustrations, four examples of the attitude that his followers are to have in contrast to the Pharisees. And throughout all four, com- all four examples, a common thread that we're going to see is that for the follower of Christ, the central concern, the defining aspect of their character, is not demanding their own rights or maintaining their own honor, but with loving and serving those around them. So in verse 39, Christ gives his first illustration. He says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, there are a lot of Bible verses that have been mangled throughout church history. And this verse gets mangled a lot. With the most common mangling being to say that it's promoting like absolute pacifism. Now, a quick spoiler for later in the sermon, it's not promoting absolute pacifism. And we'll see that as we break it down. And first we have to realize that slapping on the cheek is a specific act in the ancient world. Job speaks of people jeering at him and slapping him on the cheek in contempt. Lamentations makes a direct connection between being slapped and being filled with disgrace. So there's a connection in the Bible between being slapped and being dishonored. Interpreters have also pointed out how Jesus specifically refers to the right cheek. Now, if anybody's ever done martial arts, Sam's not here, or anyone who, I guess, also anybody who's ever been slapped, or let's hope not, has ever slapped somebody, you might notice something noteworthy here. And that's that most people are right-handed, and if you're, going, and if you're right-handed and you slap somebody, it's their left cheek that you're going to hit. In order to slap somebody's right cheek, you either have to use your offhand, Or what most scholars think is going on here is you have to backhand them. You just have to whop, whop. Which is said to have been like doubly insulting in the time. The point of a slap on the right cheek isn't to cause harm. It's to be insulting, to cause dishonor, to cause disgrace. It's to be humiliating. So what's the point of turning the other cheek? Well, the point is that Christians are not to be people concerned about their own personal pride in this way. We are told to swallow our pride. We aren't to retaliate and say, you know, he hit me, so I get to hit him back. The pharisaical use of an eye for an eye was about insisting on what you're owed, about insisting on getting the other person back. And that's what Jesus is pushing back against. As Calvin points out, Jesus' point has less to do with nonviolence or pacifism, about never resisting evil, and more about not reacting from a heart filled with an unloving, unforgiving, unrelenting, vindictive attitude. What Jesus wants is us to have an attitude that is filled with love rather than spite. If you slap a spiteful person, they're going to boil with anger. Their mind is going to start spinning about how they've been humiliated, how they need to get back at you, how they need to make you pay. And Christ's point is that As Christians, when we're insulted in this way, when we're hit in this way, that's not how our mind should work. We are to step above our personal honor. And we can do this. We can take the insult because we know that what defines us is not what the world thinks of us. Because we know that what defines us is not how strongly we assert our pride. And that is really why people retaliate. They retaliate because they have to show the world that they're not weak. They retaliate because they're defined by their pride, and so when their pride gets hurt, they have to lash out in order to regain it. To say, you know, I really am strong. I hit them back. I am not weak. But for the Christian, we say, no, I don't have anything to prove to myself or to them. Or rather, I do have something to prove, but the thing that I have to prove is not that I'm strong. The thing that I have to prove is that I've been changed, that I no longer live for my honor but for God's. And it is true that even if, and this is true even if Christ isn't only talking about insults, even if Christ is talking about physical assault, we can still say that our attitude in being attacked shouldn't be one of vengeance. Condemning a spirit of vengeance doesn't mean you can't defend oneself or one's family from assault. So Jesus' first illustration is about getting slapped, and in verse 40 he gives us a second illustration. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And again, the issue at stake is the same. In the first example, we are told not to insist on getting back at people. We're not to have hearts primed for revenge. Instead, we are to bear the insult and even go a step further by offering the other cheek. So here, if someone tries to defraud us, our first priority should not be to defend our rights or to countersue and say, you know, if you try and take my tunic, I'm going to take your tunic and your cloak as well. Instead, Christ says we are to give them our tunic and our cloak to say, I'm going to give you this even though I don't owe it to you. And a funny part about this verse that interpreters often point out is how in the ancient world, there's really only two things that you're wearing, and that's your cloak and your tunic. So if you give somebody both, then well, you're kind of just left walking around naked. And of course, the disciples weren't all walking around naked. So we should avoid a mechanical literalism in this text as we should in most of the Sermon on the Mount here. Christ's point is not to give us this new rule to follow, but to address our heart, to say, your heart should be one that doesn't insist on its own rights, that isn't tied up on what it's owed. So then we have verse 41, where if anybody forces you to walk one mile, you, can, you should walk with him too. And again, back in the ancient world, this refers to a specific practice, started by the Persians, then kept up by the Greeks and the Romans, where a mail carrier in Persia and then a soldier in Greece and Rome who was traveling could conscript you and force you to carry their luggage for a mile. And again, the point is the same. We're not to insist upon our own rights to say, you know, you can only make me go one mile but to say, I will go with you too, even though I don't owe it to you. And this would have been a particularly hard message to receive for the ancient Jewish people. A group who, more than most, hated their government, and with good reasons. They regularly rebelled against their government, so much so that they thought, as we know, that they thought Jesus' mission was to, you know, round up an army and go overthrow Rome. That was their main concern, to abolish the Roman government. Perhaps some of us in the South can sort of, you know, relate to their dislike of government. Even so, Jesus tells them that, he told them before that defending their personal rights should not be their chief priority, but they should be willing to set aside that pride. And now he tells them even they should set aside their national pride for the sake of representing Christ well. The ancient Israelite would have been tempted to boil with anger at the damage done to their Jewish pride by this sort of request. And Jesus says, no, your personal pride can't be more valuable to you than the kingdom. And neither can your national pride. So we are not to be consumed by the desire to insist upon what we're owed, not to be consumed by the desire to satisfy our pride, not when insulted, not when taken to court, not when the government makes demands upon us. And now in verse 42 not when those who are in distress ask assist- assistance of us. And so Christ says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. This one's a little bit trickier, but again, Christ is pushing back against the fallen desire to, assist, to insist upon what we're owed or to think only about, well, do I owe this person this thing? And so the natural, of the, the natural instinct of man in response to a request is, is to say, you know, ask all you want. I don't owe you anything. I don't have to give you anything. What's mine is mine. Throughout all of these examples, there is a running theme of not being consumed with pride or by what we're owed. We may be owed an eye for an eye, but we're not, that's not what we're personally supposed to insist upon. We talked before about vengeance and revenge and those desires boil down to the same idea, the desire for what we're owed. We're owed blood, and so we're going to exact it. But if we've been changed so that our values are no longer earthly values, this desire to exact what's owed is subverted. And as members of the kingdom, it is re- replaced with a desire to give what is not owed. As children of God, we become people who are filled with the desire to give what isn't owed. Because we were given something that we weren't owed. We were given grace and so we can be gracious in turn. So we can give to the one who begs even though we don't owe it to them. So those are the four illustrations that Jesus gives. And now how are we to respond to this? What difference should this make in our lives? Now again, one way this passage has been often misapplied is in defense of absolute pacifism to say that we must never stand up to any evil. Some going so far as to say we shouldn't have police or militaries or law courts because that's resisting evil. Some Mennonites even go to as far as to say you shouldn't lock your door at night because, you know, that's resisting evil. You're, you're providing resistance, resistance. And it should be obvious enough that that is not the point of this text for a variety of reasons. First, as we pointed out before, Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law was given as a guidance for courts, So at the very least, we have the courts there. And second, as we saw with Paul in Romans, and again echoing the Old Testament, the government exists to curb evil and deal out justice. And finally, as we saw, the thing that Jesus is addressing in this passage isn't even directly self-defense, but how we respond when our pride is assaulted regarding what we're owed. His point is not to command absolute passivity, to say that a parent can't defend their child from attack, or that a person being verbally or physically or sexually abused should just be a doormat. That they can't assert their basic rights as people made in the image of God. Christ's point is not, you should be a doormat. Just like the point in the previous passage isn't to say you should never take an oath. Just like the point with adultery isn't that anyone who lusts should cut off their hands and pluck out their eyes. So his point here is not to set up this law of pacifism, but to point out how we should not have a heart that seeks vengeance. The attitude of our heart should be an attitude that doesn't get angry out of pride, that doesn't treat other people as objects of lust, that isn't motivated by a desire to receive, and here, an attitude that isn't motivated by a desire for vengeance. So those are some bad ways that this passage can be applied, but what about the good ways? How should we actually apply this? Well, first, the point we keep hitting on throughout this passage is that we aren't to insist upon what we're owed. That's not the lens through which we are supposed to view our lives. If the first question on your mind is always, what do they owe me, or what do I owe them, not in a good way, but like, I don't owe them anything, then you need to check your heart. Our attitude is not to be one of revenge, but of seeking or of seeking what we're owed. We had an awesome example of this recently in the news a few months ago following the shooting of Botham Jean, the man killed in his apartment by the officer Amber Geiger. I'm sure you probably saw the news coverage. And during that trial, we saw the victim's brother, or after the trial, we saw the victim's brother come forward to speak to the woman who killed his brother. And while he could have demanded what he was owed, while he could have said, you know, you killed my brother, and so I hope the judge kills you, he didn't. Instead, he poured out love towards her. He said how he hoped that she would find Christ. And immediately, all across social media, people were rushing to condemn him. And if they weren't condemning him, they were saying, they were pointing out how they could never or would never do such a thing. How they would never be able to show that kind of mercy themselves. They just want the blood too bad. Now that is a high a high ideal to strive for, but it's one that we can reach because we've seen Christians respond this way time and time again. But we can't do it on our own. We can't do it through our own willpower. We can't do it on our own. And so the second point, and the point all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is that we need a new heart. Without a new heart and without the power of the Spirit working in us, we have no hope of ever achieving that sort of merciful attitude. Left to our own devices when our neighbor slaps us, when they insult us, when they demand things of us. And even because we're such fallen, sinful beings, even when our neighbor is in distress and they ask or beg from us, left to our own devices, we might give in reluctantly. But it'll only be that. I said before that we are told to swallow our pride, but if we just stop there, we actually miss the point that Jesus is making that has been hitting on over and over throughout the sermon. Our desire is not actually to swallow our pride. Our desire is not to just give in reluctantly. Because if that's the case, then we still hate the law. If you still hate the law, if you still have that prideful heart, then when you're insulted, that pride is going to well up inside of you, and you're going to have to fight to push it back down. That's not what Christ wants for us. What Christ wants for us is to be people who have moved beyond that human pride that is controlled by being concerned with the self, that is controlled by its own reputation. The Spirit will move us beyond that lowly human pride to a place where our pride is in Christ. And because our pride is in Christ, no human insult can touch us. A non-believer can often follow the law reluctantly, What distinguishes us as having been transformed by the Spirit is that we have new hearts that do the law gladly. And the more we are transformed, the more sanctified we become, the more gladly we follow it. So we have this promise from Christ that He will send His Spirit to transform us, to give us new hearts that love the law. And that gives us hope of being able to change. But it also does more than that. It also strengthens our faith. As Christ moves on through the Sermon on the Mount, He will talk about how this sort of attitude is a fruit of the Spirit. How the person who does this is like a house built on a rock. How they can have a solid assurance of their faith. Because when we see this fruit in our lives, when we see ourselves thinking like Christ wants us to think and acting like Christ wants us to act, and doing so gladly... Then we have a greater assurance that Christ is working in us. When we see ourselves being merciful, when we see ourselves caring more about how we can serve others and less about what we're owed, then we can have assurance that Christ is working in us. We have said that your heart shouldn't be one that doesn't should be one that doesn't insist on what it's owed. But we can go further. Not only should your heart be one, but our message from Christ is that If I'm working in you, then your heart will be one. And when we have that new heart, and when we understand what God has done for us, then we will not be people who insist upon what we're owed. We will be incapable of being that kind of person. When God himself didn't treat us according to the law of lex talionis, didn't demand that we repay in full, how can we demand it from others? If we have a heart that will not be, if we have that heart, we will not be people consumed by the question of what we're owed. Because the children of God who were bought by the blood of the cross, because as children who were bought by the blood of the cross, we know that we have received blessings beyond measure, blessings that we were not owed. God didn't owe us anything, but he gave himself for us. And it's not just that he didn't owe us. We owed him a debt greater than we could pay. It's in light of that grace that we can be people who aren't always asking, what am I owed? It's in light of that grace that we can be people who aren't always saying, I don't owe anybody anything. Instead, we can be people who gladly say, you know, I don't owe you this but I'm giving it to you anyway because I was once given something that I was not owed. So let us have that attitude as we go about our lives. And if you look inside and you don't see that attitude in your heart, then I ask you to do just two things. (coughs) First, reflect upon the unmerited grace that has been given to you in Christ. And second, pray to God to sanctify your heart that you may reflect Christ more. We all need to reflect upon that grace, and we all need to ask for greater sanctification. So let us do that now as we close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you and we praise you for the grace that you have given us through your Son on the cross. It is a grace that we were not owed. You owed us nothing. In fact, we owed you more than we could ever repay. And yet still, you gave yourself for us. And so we pray that we could reflect upon your grace and that that reflection would make us more gracious in turn. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us, that you would give us new hearts, that you would sanctify our hearts, that we could be more like you, not seeking vengeance, not concerned about what we're owed, but being concerned about what we can do for others, how we can serve others, because we were given something that we were not owed.